Well, if you would, take your Bible, please, and let's go over to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. A good definition of a Christian is a person who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. That is a Christian. If you're really a serious believer, the question is not if trouble is going to come your way. The question is when is trouble going to come your way? That's the question. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. In other words, he allows us to go through the fashion into instruments of strength. Blacksmiths used to produce useful instruments out of pieces of iron. As he pumped the bellows, the furnace would glow red hot. And in the fire, he would thrust the metal until it became almost transparent in the white heat. And then the blacksmith pulled it out of the fire, placed it on the anvil, and with a heavy hammer, he would pound that metal and and made it malleable in order to shape it into the instrument that he needed. Again... The iron was then placed back into the fire, and again, the blacksmith struck it with the hammer. All the while, he alternated plunging the metal into the fire and then into the water. Toughness, and the newly formed instrument developed strength that could be produced no other way. There's a real sense in which God does that with us, with the difficulties and the trials that we go through. We are oftentimes plunged into the hot, white, hot fire, taken back out, laid across the anvil, where God lifts up the hammer and begins to shape us with every blow on that anvil. If you're a righteous victim of oppression, our Lord may be using it in your life in a very similar way. But you must never believe that he has forgotten you while you're in the fire. Psalm 9 describes a time that David was in the fire of affliction and what he learned about God. Just above verse 1 is the description for the, for the choir director, Almuth Laban, a psalm of David. And if you remember several weeks ago, when we studied the first 10 verses of Psalm 9, we said that little phrase, Almuth Laban, literally in the Hebrew means set to the death of a son. That's what it means, set to the death of a son. The Septuagint translates it, set to the secrets of a son. And if that subscript is... A reference, it is probably a reference to the time that David was fleeing Absalom and eventually Absalom was murdered by some of David's troops, even though that was not chapter 16 and go all the way through chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. You can see the story of Absalom and how that unfolded in such a wicked way. 
Absalom was one of David's sons. So that was really quite remarkable. And in fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3, his mother is listed as being the daughter of a nearby king. So we know that David's marriage to Absalom's mother was a political arrangement. And if you remember back in ancient times when those kind of things happened, that a king would often marry the daughters of other kings around his country in order to preserve peace between the two countries, because then what king is going to attack his family and his grand? Very, very clear in Deuteronomy 17 that a king must not take, especially an Israelite king, must not take multiple wives. David did this for the purpose of a political arrangement. He took multiple wives. Absalom became a rebel. He became the type of a person who believed that his popularity and his strength exceeded that of his father's. And as a result of that, he actually was a significant part of an uprising against David in order to acquire the throne of Israel. And David understood that not just as rebellion within his own household, but he also understood that as rebellion against God who had anointed him specifically as king. Now, it's one thing I want you to know. When you go and people bring oppression into your life, that's one thing. But how much much more difficult it is when it's actually members of your own household? And in this particular case, Absalom wanted to kill his father. And he did everything he could in order to muster troops and an alliance around him of thousands upon thousands, even tens of thousands of people in order to hunt David down and to kill him. David had to flee Jerusalem for fear of his own life. This is insurrection, not just an opposition and oppression, not just from anyone out there. This is opposition that arises from someone within your own household, someone that is your own child. So this is significant. In this case, Absalom was out to kill David. Because as we said, Psalm 9 and 10 used to be one psalm. It is a Hebrew acrostic that begins in chapter nine um, with the Hebrew letter Aleph and ends at the end of chapter 10 with the end of the alphabet, the Hebrew letter Tav. So it is an ongoing. So this is part two of a four-part message series. So the question then comes, about David. He found himself helpless, completely at the mercy of his own son and those who wanted to kill him. So what can we learn from David's helpless and vulnerable state? What can we learn? What was his response to his adversity for allowing this to happen in his life? Does he accuse God of not caring or mistreating him? Well, a study of David's response to severe oppression is going to reward you with a gold mine of wisdom. This message 
really is a continuation then of what we started in verses 1 through 10. And in verses 1 through 10, if you recall, we highlighted three key things. One is the fact that David, while he was being pursued by the members of his own household, his own son, begins this psalm by describing Yahweh as the one who deserves worship. I wonder if that's where your heart and your mind I mean, now maybe it's possible that someone's never really intended to kill you, but that could be possible. In this David's case, they wanted David dead. But is your first response to that one of worship? We talked about that in verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 through 6, we talked about how David describes God displaying his wrath against those who are wicked and have evil intent. That God's wrath is fully exposed to them. And thirdly, David ends up in verses 7 through 10, describing how he destroys, Yahweh destroys the wicked. So this message today really is a continuation from our previous message focused on God's proactive response to those who are oppressed. He deserves worship. He displays his wrath. He destroys the wicked. And in the second message, now David turns in verse 11 to the believer's response to God's intervention. The believer's response to God's intervention. Now, after David has expressed in the first 10 verses of Psalm 9, Yahweh's display of wrath and the fact that he will destroy the wicked, David's reactions then are seen in verses 11 through 20. You've got to constantly keep in mind that David is on the run, fearful for his own life. And this is where his thinking and his mind turns to. His heart is full of confidence and clarity in his own life. When you're being oppressed and harassed by people who want to do evil towards you, you have to remind yourself, not only does the Lord see your affliction, he will also move aggressively against those who are intent on bringing you harm. He will do that. You just have to wait for his timing. The Lord is the avenger. You have to regularly remind yourself of this truth, and it's going to bring you the confidence and the clarity that David had in terms of moving forward. Our God, you've got to understand, has sealed the fate of evildoers. He has sealed their fate. He will not allow any injustice to prevail. God will not allow any injustice to go unpunished. And especially... When the opposition, those who trust in Yahweh, will sing forth his wonders. So beginning in verse 11, this becomes key. In this particular case, David declares Yahweh's wonders in verses 11 and 12. And he says in verse 11 that Yahweh has not forgotten the cry of the afflicted. 
In a bold declarative voice, David commands a vocal response of melodious praise. In fact, the Hebrew actually says there in verse 11, he says, sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So, this is very, very simple. We'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. Only, and this is, you can't see this in the English, but you can see it in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for sing, here in verse 11, is in the imperative. It's in the command voice. In verse 2, it was in the imperfect voice or mood. So you can almost hear the confidence in David's tone as he admonishes his readers in a synthetic parallelism to sing and then to declare among the people his acts. Both are stated very boldly in the imperative mood. So as David recalls the faithlessness or faithfulness of the Lord to defend and really avenge his saints, this ends up sparking a burst of confident optimism to boldly proclaim how the Lord works off of those who are unrighteously, unjustly afflicted. This is a truth you can't ignore. Confident Christian living begins with how well you know and believe your Lord's intentions towards those who persecute you. Doubtful, dubious, and emotionally unstable is the believer who fails to understand the judgment of the Lord intends to bring upon oppressors. And your life will be very unstable. It will be full of doubts. And your emotions will be dubious. Yahweh is always desired to be among his people. You have to remember that. And David camps on that here in Psalm 9. You look at verse 11, he abides in Zion, especially dwell in Israel's midst. For the ancient people of Israel who had never lived with God in resonance within their camp, this was a thought that struck fear in the depths of their hearts. How do you live and act with God living in the tabernacle in the middle of your encampment? How do you do that? And then later on, how do you live with God in the middle of where your land is, in this particular case, Jerusalem and the temple area of Jerusalem? How do you live with God in your midst? How do you live and act with God living in the middle of your camp? Remember, the fear that swept through all the Jews as they saw the lightning and the thunder coming from Mount Sinai and they felt the ground quake beneath them in the middle of their encampment. Let me give you a few examples of this. It says in Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, it says, God says to him, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. This is what God has always wanted to do. He's always wanted to dwell among his people. 
And then in Deuteronomy chapter 11, in the second giving of the law, or chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 11. Notice what it says there. It says, then it will be that the place in which Yahweh your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I am commanding you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions, votive offerings, which you will vow to Yahweh. So he says to them just before they enter into the promised land that when his temple, in essence, this is a reference to this, is established there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, when that's the case, then that is where he will dwell among them. In Leviticus 26, in verse 11, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not loathe you. In Numbers 35, in verse 34, And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And then later on in 1 Kings 6 and verse 13, says that I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. But fear, because he promised to provide and protect them as long as they kept the covenant. Yahweh is not like men who forgets their promises. He speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, he says, Can a woman forget her infant and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So God has promised and Yahweh has promised that he will reside with his people. He will not forget his people, even though his people will be allowed to go through affliction, difficulties, and the fires of the furnace sometimes. He will not forget them. Now, for the New Testament, than just living near the believer, he indwells each believer. One New Testament scholar said it like this, although indwelling was not unknown in the Old Testament, it was not universal among all believers. Our Lord himself made the contrast when he summarized the Spirit's relationship to men in the Old Testament as being with them in John 14, verse 17. Now he is in believers, and that apparently is a different relationship. In the first epistle of John, he spoke of indwelling under the figure of anointing. Indwelling under the figure of anointing. In fact, take your Bible for a moment and go over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And then if you skip down just... Uh, seven verses to verse 27. And as for you, the anointing whom you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, as just as he has taught you, abide in him. So what is this saying about the New Testament believer? What's it saying about you and about me? 
Well, the indwelling dwelling presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer today should bring you even greater assurance and greater confidence of the Lord's understanding, especially when you are enduring affliction and oppression. When you are oppressed, and his desires is that Yahweh will deliver them because he is a part of them. This is an even greater reason to declare his wonders, and David says that. You'll notice there, back in Psalm 9 and verse 11, sing praises to Yahweh. If David had that, understanding that Yahweh dwelled in Zion in their midst, Imagine how much greater the praise of New Testament Christians should be since Yahweh dwells within them. Which brings us to our verse 12, where Yahweh will demand punishment for bloodthirsty oppressors. He will demand it. The two main verbs of verse 12, to remember, and the word does not forget, are figure metonymies, which is a figure of speech consisting of the use of the name of one thing for that of another. In other words, Yahweh will act upon the needs of his people. And although man can easily forget things that are important, just ask any wife about her husband's recall of their anniversary, Yahweh does not forget. Forgetting is a passive act. When information is not used or recalled to memory on a regular basis, then the information is usually forgotten. It's lost. That's how you and I forget. But the implication is that our Lord recalls perfect memory of you constantly. Now, how do we understand that? You understand that by the very ontology of who God is. We are creatures, and another thought, and another thought, within a time-space continuum. But God is not in time. He is not in space. He stands above time and space. In other words, he thinks all thoughts at the same time. There is no past to God. There is no future to God. There is only an eternal presence with him. So he never forgets anything. It's like every thought and every knowledge of you is ever present in his mind. Wow, that changes everything, especially with his indwelling within our hearts. Forgetting is a passive thing that's restricted to finite creatures. But God is infinite. He's infinite. There is nothing in your life that he does not know or remember. When people want to hurt you, when Now, the cry for help in verse 12 is David crying out of the depths of his heart. It is when every other human defense is gone. You're helpless. You're totally vulnerable. This is the way David was. Your enemy sees your defenselessness and moves in for the kill. To require your blood means your oppressor desires to take your life. And this is compounded infinitely over the fact that it was David's own son that wanted to do that. That is when David sensed the presence of the Lord the most. 
One theologian said it like this. What is man that you remember him? Hebrews 2, 6. He remembered that they were but flesh. Psalm 78, 39. He remembers that we are us in our low state. Psalm 136, verse 23. He remembers his loving kindness. Psalm 98 and verse 3. The Lord has remembered us. Psalm 115 and verse 12. If you will remember me and not forget me, this is Hannah's desperate prayer in 1 Samuel 1, 11. This is what David, this is what God will do. You will be remembered by the Lord. Numbers chapter 11 or chapter 10 and verse 9. Though a mother may forget, I will not forget you. Isaiah 49, 15 that we mentioned earlier. You will not be forgotten by me, Isaiah 44, verse 21. The needy will not always be forgotten, Psalm 9 and verse 18. God does not forget the cry of the afflicted, Psalm 9 and verse 12. Not a six. And if that is true of the God that you serve that indwells you, then your oppression or you being oppressed is not new news to him. It's not. This passage is directly applicable to those living under a tyrannical government or those who are at the mercy of terrorists. Christians who live in a hostile environment around the world need these kinds of promises. Believers who live in Islamic, Hindu, atheistic, totalitarian countries. You can see the beginnings of this in the United States, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. Verses like this are going to become more and more precious the more totalitarian our government becomes. But in the midst of this bleak picture, there's a wonderful truth. Our life that is yet to come. This should be the cause for singing and declaring the Lord's praise. Let's take another important step forward. Those who trust in Yahweh knows that he delivers the weary. He delivers the weary. Verses 13 through 16. He will do that. In fact, Yahweh will have compassion and remove affliction. Suddenly in verses 13 and 14, follow along as I read. It says, be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my afflictions from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Passion, favor, and gracious kindness. This is a type of favor that is um, undeserved, but nonetheless urgently needed. In an anthropomorphic way, David asked Yahweh to see the mistreatment that he is enduring at the hands of those who hate him. And so David is now praying with confidence and not in desperation because in verse 13, he describes Yahweh as one who can lift me up from falling through the entrance to the place of death. And this is the ultimate act of an oppressor to take your life. So much potential power is in the possession of the oppressor that death seems to be imminent. Only the Lord has the irresistible power to keep it from happening. 
Only the Lord can thwart this evil fate, but he to overcome evil, even when you are at your most vulnerable state. And then look at verse 14. Yet, you must remember that one of the greatest purposes of your salvation is that you can live to give awesome praise to the Lord as your Redeemer. David does not pray for the Lord to save his life so that he can return to his own status quo as king of Israel. It's not what he prays. That is the way a lot of Christians will pray today. Lord, get me out of this situation so I can return to my normal life, so I can return to my status quo. It's not what David says. He prays for the Lord to save him from this deadly fate so that he can bring him greater praise. This initiates even greater praise out of his heart. And in the gates of the city to praise the Lord for his salvation. That's what verse 14 says. Now listen to this carefully. Yahweh removes your affliction, not primarily for your earthly benefit, but for his praise and glory. Did you hear me? Yahweh's deliverance does not make you the center of the universe. He's the center of the universe, not you. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord saves you first for his glory and second for your benefit. But his glory is always is what it is always preeminent. There is a deliverance for his glory. It's just that the two go hand in hand. David clearly says in verse 14, he wants the Lord to deliver him so that he can in turn proclaim his glory, sing his praises, shout his renown in the gates of the city. The gates of the ancient Israeli city were the choke points where everyone had to pass going about their daily affairs. So for David to use that terminology is for him to say, I want to announce your glory and your praise to everyone that goes in and out of the city. This is the whole purpose of David's cry for deliverance. It's not just to save his skin. It's not just to save his skin. Now, fasten your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on. You ready? Verses 15 and 16 now. Yahweh will bring, I should say, and I want you to carefully consider the next two verses with your greatest attention. Don't miss this. Verse 15 says this, the nations have sunk down to the pit, which they have made in the net, which they have hid. Their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed just uh, judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. What is Talianic justice? God not only tells us that he will judge oppressors of his people, he also tells us how he will judge the oppressors of his people. This is what he does. The Latin term lex talionis is a principle of punishment Roman law had elements of this, and 
the idea was that criminals should receive a punishment precisely equivalent to the injuries and the damages that they have inflicted upon their victim. That's Lex Telionis. They need to receive the punishment that is equal to what they did to the victim. If our laws ever return to that, oh, that would clear up a lot of problems. <laughs> we would be living in Shangri-La. Verse 15. This principle really is, this Lex Talionis principle is um, as old as time. Uh, we have a saying that's very similar. The punishment must fit the crime. In the Mosaic Code 23 and 24, but if there is any further injury, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's Exodus 21, verses 23 and 24. And then later on in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. He says, if a man injures his neighbor, just as C has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Deuteronomy 19, 21. Thus, your eye shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. God says, this is also the way that he will operate with malarm his people. The traps the wicked set to capture and to eliminate their adversaries are the very traps that they will get caught in and be destroyed. There's Lex Talionis. That is the way that God has designed temporal justice. Listen to the way that Solomon describes this law for those who try to do evil against righteous men. Ecclesiastes 10, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what Solomon says. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. The implication that people are doing all of this work in order to set up traps, but what ends up happening is that traps are made out of a hard uh, brick, um, but was also would uh, be a very fragile brick in some cases. And so if they knew where somebody kept their valuables, they would dig through the side of the wall and, and reach in in order to grab someone's valuables through that brick mud wall. And, uh, and the implication here, Solomon says, someone digging through a wall in order to steal something from you, actually on the other side is a poisonous serpent that bites them. The Lord is the one who determines all these misfortunes that evil people experience who attempt to set traps against his saints. In his sovereign, vindictive justice, the awful, evil people plan for others will have this boomerang effect upon them. Proverbs chapter 1. In fact, turn your Bible over to Proverbs 1 for a moment. You can see this worked out here. 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. For it is no use that a net is spent uh, spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the paths of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. There it is. Criminal activity has this boomerang effect. Criminal activity has this teleonis effect. That's the way God has designed all of life. Our Lord sees to it that the punishment will fit the crime. No matter how deceptive, dishonest, and clever an oppressor thinks that he is, he cannot be avoided. Instead, this is what happened to Haman, right? In the book of Esther, the very gallows that he built for Mordecai was the same one that he hung on later. Esther chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had set for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. The very evil that was intended and set up to be done against God's people came back and visited on their own head. Now look at verse 16. Psalm 9, verse... Through these kinds of reversals, then Yahweh has made himself known. Our Lord is the one who sets things right, and he does it in a most pleasing way, not pleasing to the wicked, but pleasing to the righteous, who are able to see how beautifully appropriate and perfectly fitting his judgment is back on their own head. Wow. So such a person destroys himself while attempting to destroy others. That is the beauty of divine justice. It is poetic justice. Now, there's a true story of a woman who found out that her husband had committed adultery and had broken their marriage covenant. So she jumped out of the third story window in Prague and the local newspaper reported that the wife was recovering in the hospital after landing on her husband. He was killed. (laughs) True story. Talk about wickedness being visited back upon your own head. When we studied Psalm 7, as we did this morning in the first service, he hit and hollowed it out, and he has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return on his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. So this is divine retributive justice doing its perfect work. But you've got to remember, all of this is done first for the Lord's praise and glory. Second, for your deliverance. Again, you cannot separate God's glory from his people's blessings. Man's welfare is always parasitic on God's glory. Remember that. Man's welfare is always parasitic on God's glory. To separate the two within pinch... Uh, the, uh, impunge upon the goodness of God. Now it's time to take another step forward in understanding how our Lord provides and protects the oppressed, which brings us here. Those who trust in Yahweh know a final judgment will come upon the wicked. There's the destiny of the wicked. There is a final judgment that will come. Yahweh will ensure the wicked will return to the grave. 
Now, what does that mean? In fact, if you look, verse 17, the wicked will return, future voice, to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, Yahweh, do not turn, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Verse 17 now. Here's where you will see the equity of God's judgment will return to Sheol. Well, this can be translated with the simple future tense, will return, just as the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. Or it can be translated with the obligatory imperfect, which is the wicked must return. In any case, their destiny is Sheol. The whole idea of return may refer back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. As God pronounces the details of the curse on Adam and Eve and all their descendants, listen to what he says. He says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Suggesting that the dust of the earth from which the outer body of man will return to the earth from which it came. Translation uses the word hell instead of Sheol. And so it takes the broader sense of the realm of departed spirits in this case. Uh, but the Hebrew word is that of Sheol. Um, so my best understanding of this is that it does refer to the grave, but also has overtones that seem to be a dark abyss of departed spirits. It is much more than just mere death because the immediate surrounding context is one of severe otherworldly judgment, and it's going to be forever. We're going to see that in a moment. And this is not just some individual personal judgment. As verse 17b says, it includes whole groups, whole nations of people who forget God. So it's judgment in that sense on a very much global scale. Now look at verse 18. If verse 17 is the dark side for the righteous, verse 18, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. That word forever is really key in the understanding of everything that's happening here. While the wicked perish forever in verse 17, in verse 18, the afflicted do not perish, but they endure forever. Their affliction will be gone forever in that sense. Verse 18 implies that it may seem that the needy are forgotten for a time, but it will not be forever. God in his own goodness will remember them. He does not forget and rescue them from their oppressors. Their hope will not perish during times of uncertainty. Someday their hope will be fully and completely realized. Then notice in verses 19 and 20, Yahweh will strike fear among the nations. The final two verses of Psalm 9 are examples of how any believer who is suffering under the tyranny of an oppressive person or a regime should pray. If you are being harshly treated at the hands of someone who seems to have all the power, then you should commit verses 19 and 20 to memory. 
praying them over and over again to the Lord. It is a prayer marked by boldness. When David writes, Arise, Yahweh, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Now, verse 19 This verse calls upon Yahweh to act like a final judge and cause men and their collective nations to cease their tyranny. Arise, because God does not need to stand up, but it is a call for immediate action. Do not let weak and frail men prevail. They are weak and they are frail in comparison to God's omnipotence. One commentator said that these tyrants in their acts of tyranny and terror seem to have strength, but when they will be judged, they will be seen for what they are. They are actually weak and pitiful. And then look at verse 20. It says then, these are the type of people who have spent their lives causing men to be in fear of them. And now Yahweh is their final judge. They will really know what fear is, They caused fear, but they will be condemned with fear. That's Lex you could ever imagine. Then the world will see that they are fragile, weak, mortal, frail, little tyrants. As we saw earlier in this psalm, such oppressors believe that they can actually, they are actually serving the Lord's interest. In fact, That's exactly what happens when you read the account of Absalom and all of his counselors who came to him. They believed that they were actually serving Yahweh by going up against David and putting him to death. They believed it. That even makes it even harder. Not only is this a member of his own household, but it's also a person who pretended to serve Yahweh. This is the worst type of tyranny. C.S. Lewis once observed, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for good of its victims may be the most oppressive. To sum up, Psalm 9. I will quote, quote from one Bible scholar who says, because God has demonstrated that he is the righteous judge of the world, Believers may trust in him now for protection from the wicked and confidently pray for final vindication in the judgment to come. Well, that is part two of our four-part messages on Psalm 9 and 10. In our next message, we'll move to Psalm 10, which, if you remember, is a continuation of that acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet all the way through the end to Tav, And in fact, Psalm 10 continues to address the same theme of ministering to oppressed saints. Ministering to oppressed saints. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious, that Psalm 9 gives us when we are enduring deep oppression, affliction, hardship at the hands of those who want to do us harm. And it may seem for a period of time that all the power and all of the authority is in the hands of the oppressor. But in reality, Father, you will show them to be little tyrants that are weak and feeble. In the end, Father, the very devices that they 
scheme and concoct through their own self um, commitments to doing evil. Through all of that that occurs there will actually come back upon their own head. The very fear that they struck in the a fear like no other fear because it will be the fear of almighty God against them. You cannot mess with God's people without the Lord being the avenger. I pray, Father, that Psalm 9 will be the type of encouragement to God's people that they can take into everyday life and with boldness, with courage, and with great expectation as to what the future holds because it's in the hands of an almighty and loving Father that they will be able to serve you faithfully. This we pray in Christ's name.